The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we just sang about your goodness, your great mercy, how you alone are endless joy and so we cling to Christ. We sang that and for some of us here we sang that perhaps without that being our experience or with that at best being our hope. But feeling it difficult to cling to you and wondering if you actually are endless joy. We heard prayed earlier about delighting in you, and some of us struggle to delight in you. It is, in fact, a supernatural intervention, and so we pray for a supernatural work by you on us, Father, Son, and Spirit. Would you move on us here in a way that is beyond our normal? that is beyond the ability for us to explain, well, this, that, and the other happened, and that's why, but would leave us instead saying, God moved, God worked, God opened my eyes. I saw him, I rejoiced in him. Do that, please. And Lord, we reckon that the Bible also says that we love you, or we delight in you because you first loved us. And so we pray, we ask, I particularly this morning as we open up this passage and speak about these words here from your scripture, I pray that you would cause us to, to receive, to be um, on the receiving end of an outpouring of your love that we would then love. Of your goodness to us that we would then delight in you. Of your amazing, astounding, wondrous, deep, wide, high love for us that we would see you as great joy and would be moved to cling. You do not force love from us you open our eyes to see that which is lovely. So open our eyes that we can behold you in some of your, we won't ever see all of it, but in some of your amazing goodness. Open our eyes that we could behold the lovely one and would then love. Love you and love others for you on, on behalf of you in your name's sake. Move this morning, Lord, and, and show us your goodness. Do so supernaturally, Spirit of God. Would you have your omnipotent way in this room and in the hearts of the folks in this room that we would not be left as we are? Would you please overcome all resistance and all barriers, the physical material ones, temperature and shining light and sounds. Lord, overcome all that and cause us to be free from distraction. And spiritually, Lord, there are barriers 
existing in our hearts, and that will be thrown up over the next hour by an enemy who wants us not to see the lovely one. Overcome all such barriers, please. Spirit of God, intervene amongst the people of God. Win them again today. Win us for yourself. We are yours. Lay tighter claim to us, please. Make your word clear. Help us to see it and to understand it. Help us to apply it. Help us to rejoice in what it's about. And build up your church. Do this for our good, I pray, and for the glory of Christ. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 6, where we are considering the last section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's taken us several weeks to get here to this point. We've worked through the introductory section of this great sermon, and it is a great sermon. We've worked through the introductory section, the, the Beatitudes and the Woes, verses 20 to 26, spoken by Jesus to draw the attention of his disciples, followers of his, his people, Christians we would call them today, to draw our attention on towards the future where our reward in Christ is realized. Our reward is not now, our reward is coming. He draws our attention there, and looking forward is what enables us to listen to and obey the central thrust of the message, the main part, the call from him to us that we should love our enemies. That's what he's most concerned to make clear for us. The Beatitudes and the Woes are just set up for that. He's explaining, this is what disciples, this is what followers of mine in character are like. They love their enemies. They love those who are against them, those who they aren't very fond of themselves. We are this way. He's talking to disciples personally about how we are to be. He calls us to bless those who persecute us, to forgive and to give to them what they need rather than cursing and condemning and as a minor aside, in light of recent events in Paris, he's speaking to individuals, to Christians. Governments should pursue without mercy wickedness. Individual Christians, individual Christians he's speaking to. And he calls us to something that is incredibly hard, a very high and hard bar. What he calls us to is obviously what he requires of us. It's what obedience looks like. And that was the point that we began to work on last week as he's concluding. He's in the final section of the sermon, and he's putting before us very simply a call to obedience. He's beginning to wrap this up, and he's stressing the importance of actually following him. This is the simple point from last week. Followers of Jesus are careful to follow Jesus. To not get distracted into following someone else, some blind guide who will lead us astray, conform us to his or her image, but to follow Jesus and to actually follow Jesus and not just get caught up in knowing what Jesus says and in knowing the truth and in maybe pointing it out or being a defender of it in somebody else's life, but to in fact first attend to ourselves. Be careful that we ourselves follow Jesus. And that's what prepares us then to help other people take the speck out of their eye, which is important part of the body. But 
one task, one ministry in the body that we are equipped to do as we first tend to ourselves and make sure that we follow. That's what we need to do. That's what makes us helpful to others. And so he ends that section in verse 42 with saying, be careful to take the the beam out of your eye so that you'll be able to help the other person. And that flows right into our section. Begins with the four. Verse 43 begins with the four because he's kind of got a connecting thought here. Why do you have to attend to yourself first if you're going to help somebody else? Because when you fix yourself, that gives you something good to give to them. That's the connection and thought. But it's not really important that we consider them together, so we're not going to. We're just going to look at this paragraph in isolation. I'm going to read verse 43 through 45, and then make two observations from the analogies that Jesus puts before us. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. i make two observations about this short paragraph here. Here's the first one. Since life flows from the heart, we pursue good, right living by attending to our hearts. Since life flows from the heart, life flows out of the heart, and because of that, we pursue good, right living by attending to our hearts. I said good, right living. I could have used the word righteousness there instead of good, right living because when Jesus uses the word good, he corrects perhaps some of our misunderstandings. We might think of good as as in any way something desirable or favorable or something that we like, something that's fun. But Jesus makes clear when he uses the word good, you see there he sets it opposite evil. The good man, the good treasure produces good. The evil man, the evil treasure produces evil. Good opposite evil, he's thinking righteousness. What is right, what is pleasing and right, according to the proper standard, that's God himself. So, right, righteousness, good, righteousness, but I'm saying right living to kind of keep our attention focused on Jesus is discussing living, actually expressing something. Life lived out. A life that is pleasing and that is right according to the proper standard. So he's not talking about how we can become right in God's eyes. He's talking to people who already are followers of his. He's not saying how to become one. He's saying now that you are, for us, a Christian, here's how a Christian lives. His view is on right living, on the following of Jesus, not on becoming a Christian. This is what he says about a life that actually is following of Jesus. You address your own eyesight. That is, let me express it in an analogy why you have to do that. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Vice versa, it works both ways. Like produces like. You can look at a tree 
You look at the fruit, and you know what kind of tree you have. And his examples, if you notice, he's, he's trying to teach us, trying to teach us where right comes from. His examples are, are positive ones. You're looking for figs, you're looking for grapes, and you don't find those on thorn bushes, on brambles. We're looking for something positive, something good and right in living here. The good person produces good, and the evil person produces evil from what's inside. And here's the punchline, the bottom of, of these various um, little wisdom statements. The punchline, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What comes out, comes out from somewhere. It comes out from in here. From within, what's filling up, what's welling up inside of us, what is abundant, what, what is rising up, it kind of flows out like water flows out of a spring. It bubbles up inside and comes out. And we will speak, perhaps to someone that we're trying to help take the speck out of his eye, we'll speak to them or we'll live in, in any variety of ways. We will live according to what's inside of us because life flows out from the heart. What does that mean? Well, when he talks about the heart, living out of the heart or speaking out of the heart, he does not quite mean perhaps what we think of. We often use heart today in our language to describe something like honest emotion. Let me speak to you from the heart. What I mean is I want to speak to you honestly, clearly, and with some compassion, with some feeling. I'm not going to hide anything. I want to be open. And in some ways, there's some connection to what the Bible means by heart, but, but not enough. So we get set aside perhaps what we bring in from out there. The Bible talks about heart. What it means is the core of a person's being within the innermost you, as opposed to the, the outer you, the surface you. And it includes feelings and emotions, but not just feelings and emotions. Heart also includes thoughts, things we contemplate and how we contemplate them, the values that we hold, what governs our contemplation, the goals, the aspirations, the things we want, the will the, the willing component, the desiring and moving towards component, all that's from the heart. And some of that's quite obvious to us. If you sit and you think about option A and option B, you can kind of see yourself weighing it out. That's the heart at work. But how you weigh out one versus the other, why you call this a pro and this a con, the value system is also the heart at work. And how strongly you value one thing as opposed to the other, that's also the heart at work. So how you see it and how strongly you see it and why one thing triumphs over another, that's all the heart at work, and it is incredibly complicated. The Bible talks about the heart and says, it is deep water. Who can understand it? Only God. Jesus' point here is that this complicated innermost us drives us. That's where life comes from. We live inside out. Water flows up and out. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And since we can't understand the heart and can't look into the heart, we are left looking at, well, what's come out? And this connection here helps us to evaluate ourselves. And that's Jesus' point here. If you were to read Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uses this to help us evaluate other people, particularly teachers. Luke doesn't go there. Luke holds us on us. He holds you on you. He means for us to look at, okay, where's the fruit? I see the fruit that's growing on the branches of my life, if you will. And I can look at that fruit and I can reason backwards and say, I know where that came from. What does it say about what's going on in here? I am to look and say, I am producing something. And is it generally good or is it generally evil? Is it righteous or unrighteous? Broadly speaking, am I a follower of his? But particularly speaking, what's Jesus' issue here in the sermon? Look at the fruit in your life and say and ask, am I loving my enemy? Am I blessing the one who persecutes me? Am I turning the other cheek and offering up another chance to be humiliated? Am I seeking, am I, am I thoughtfully considering what does this person need? What are they, what's really good for them? And how can I give that to bless this one who curses me? Or, on the other hand, am I cursing in return? And am I reviling when reviled? Am I rejecting people? Not rejecting actions. We must reject actions and judge actions for what they are, right or wrong. But I'm not to condemn people. Am I a condemner of people? Am I a judger of people? Jesus has this here to point out. If you look at your life and you see that, you can follow the fingers and follow the arm and you can follow it and you know something about yourself. You can see the inside of you by looking at the fruit. He commands love and he commands kindness and he commands mercy towards others. He calls us to this. And as we look at ourselves as you look at yourself and you say, what is growing in my life? What do you do when you find, eh? More bad fruit than I'd hoped for. If I'm honest, it's kind of tilted. Love for enemy? I'm trying to tolerate enemy. Not condemning people, my inner monologue is all day long of this person is and that person is and this person is. And if they knew, that's all day long in me. Seeking, thoughtfully considering what does this person need and then seeking to give it to them, not a chance. I'm trying to get from me. And I'm angry that they're stopping me. As you evaluate yourself and you see you fall short, which we do. Which we do. If you're, if you're honest with what Jesus has required of us here, you see it's, it's not here, it's, it's here. And we're here, somewhere, somewhere, but not, not there. And you look at yourself and you say, I fall short of that. What do you do right there? Some of us, unfortunately, say, well, forget the standards. That's impossible. And we throw it aside and never think about it again and get angry at me for bringing it up. 
Some of us do that. But worse, I mean, that's not good. But worse, tragically, some of us respond by seeing the bar set up here and me here, and what you try to do is you work harder to get to the bar. You try harder to be nicer. Tragically, this is so often what passes as Christian growth or Christian maturity, trying harder to be better. Now, aside, we do, of course, always need to make decisions that govern our actions. You're sitting at the computer and your hand is actually going to have to move somehow or another, going to have to move the mouse and click out of the website. That's not just going to happen. You've got to do that. And you've got to hold your tongue and keep from saying that thing. And, and you, you have to pick up the phone, reference a few weeks ago, and call that person and invite them over for dinner. You know, those are actions that you actually do have to do. So I'm not saying I'm against action. By no means. However, When done by themselves, all that is is Pharisaic behavior. Do you see that? All that is is external changing of my behavior that hasn't touched the real you, the heart the innermost core of you. It's just changed the fruit manually in a way that Paul Tripp calls brilliantly apple-nailing. Some of you know this illustration. It's one of the best illustrations I've ever heard because it's grabbing a critical point for us as Christians and making it really clear. You have an apple tree that underproduces. You don't get the the amount of fruit, or it gets rotten fruit. You grow rotten fruit on it, and you look at that and you say, ugh, what's growing there is, ugh. That problem is not solved by plucking off all that fruit, going to the store, buying a bushel of beautiful apples, and nailing them to the tree. From across the street for a few days, that will look wonderful. From distance for a few days. But if you get up close, you'll recognize this is false. And everybody will see eventually, and rotten. Because it's not intrinsic. There's no life in that. There's no, there's no changing of where that actually came from, the tree, the roots. It's just pretend. It's just surface work. It hasn't actually addressed the heart. How unfortunate that many of us actually think, I mean, to put it like that, you wouldn't do that, but many of us actually think that the Christian life, that maturity, that seeing the bar that I fall short of is actually addressed and fixed by just changing the fruit, exercising my willpower to be a different behavior. But you haven't actually become a different person in here. Apple nailing never works. It doesn't work. 
It dishonors God because it doesn't actually change you, the you that he sees. It doesn't actually persuade people because we all know this. You've all met a whole bunch of religious people around here who are great apple nailers. It doesn't actually persuade you. It doesn't actually draw you because you know something's not quite true, genuine here. And it doesn't change you. And so when the going gets tough, you don't have anything actually in you to be a different person. When the enemy is really, really mean, you are not a lover. You just were pretending to love. And you will fight. You will resist and you will hate. You will not turn the other cheek because you're not any different. It doesn't work. It dishonors God. It doesn't persuade people. All that we're left with when we pursue that is, is just some assortment of rotten fruit and, and appearance, but you don't actually get at any real change. When a parent has a conversation with a, a son or a daughter about clothing, and all the conversation is is about clothing and skin and curves and cleavage and muscles, and never about Why? What are you looking for? What are you fearing from other people or hoping to get from other people? And why do you want that from them? You never actually get at anything in the core. You might get, you might get more modest clothing, but you will not have a modest person on your hands. You will have nailed some clothing to the tree. But you will not have changed anybody. And issue after issue after issue for other people and for ourselves. We must not be a people. We cannot be a people who say, I see the calling of Jesus set before me. I see I must be a follower of Jesus, and here's what that means, and I fall short. I better get to it and try harder and can control the fruit and, and take out of my life by willpower and by habit and by discipline Jesus' whole point is all of this grows here. You have, if you're going to change all of this, you have to get after this here, the heart, or you can't accomplish difference. This should be great relief to us because you know, you see the bar, you fall short, one option, throw it all away, forget about it. The other option, try harder. You know that is hard. And, um, I'm trying to think of a nice word, um, is undesirable. It just leaves you under the pile, striving and trying and striving and trying. Check yourself. Whenever you find the list, the call of God, love your enemies, do good to your neighbors, and do good to those who don't like you, and do good to your children, and do good to your spouse, and pray like this, and read your Bible, and trust God for this, and give away your time, and give away your money. Ugh! When you feel like that, you just discovered probably apple nailing. The ugh is, I can't get enough apples, I don't have enough nails. That's what that is because your whole pursuit of that even though you didn't realize it your whole pursuit of that is to say i gotta fix this 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 how much is there to fix how much time is there how much burden is there you've just discovered something about your pursuit 
of holiness, your pursuit of following Jesus. So to realize that's all wrong should be a great relief to you. We have to address the heart, not the fruit. The heart that produces the fruit. Okay? How? What do you do about that? Since life flows from the heart, we pursue good, right living by attending to the heart. How? That takes us to the second point. Our hearts are changed by the deepening conviction. What am I going to say there? Our hearts are changed by the deepening conviction of the love of God for you in Christ. How many of you thought I was going to say of the wickedness of sin? Don't raise your hand, but just how many of you thought that? Our hearts are changed by the deepening conviction. Conviction. That's a word that goes beyond just stuff I know or things I think about. Conviction. A conviction that is deepening. It's becoming deep and vast and wide, steady and sturdy. Our hearts are changed by a deepening conviction of the love of God for us in Christ. After observing the almost proverbial wisdom of of every one of these statements, good comes from good, bad comes from bad, kind of like proverbial wisdom, he then comes and says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And if you read much of the Bible, that might bring you up short. Because you can also hear Jesus saying, there is no one good but God. Jesus said that. And you can also remember the only other, like the first time, the the clearest, strongest time that I can remember, maybe for you, the Bible talking about the heart was in Genesis 6. Obviously, the Bible talks about the heart everywhere, but this is the one thing that some people know. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't think it could get much worse than that. Wickedness, every intention of the thoughts of his heart, only evil continually. So much for the good person out of the good inside of him producing good. What? what? How do you ever get onto the correct half of this little analogy here? Jesus is talking about good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit, good, 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 evil, evil, evil. Well, we are way here for certain. How do you ever get onto the positive side of this? Is there, is there any possible way that you can become a good tree, that you can become a good person with good in your heart that produces good? How does that happen? And right on the surface, on the one hand, this passage does not tell us. This is just explanation. Jesus is just talking about the heart and how it works. It doesn't say anything right here 
in this paragraph. On the one hand, he's silent on the issue. But on the other hand, we need to keep in mind that this is all part of one sermon. Jesus didn't deliver this sermon over like seven weeks like I have now. If you read it right through, it would have been just a few minutes ago that he was actually telling us something about how the heart is made good. He's been giving us this answer in a couple different places, the how question. He mentions the Beatitudes and the woes, and in particular, right in the heart, 35-36, right in the heart of the hard section, where he calls us to this high bar. He tells us something right in there, right laced right in the middle of that 35-36. He tells us something about how our hearts are drawn into alignment with what he commands. How can a heart be made good to do such awesome, such right, good living that he's talking about here? Well, he says, love your enemies. And then he says, next, this is verse 35, love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. You will be the spitting image of your Father. We talked about that section. That's what we, we teased out. That's what that phrase means. You'll be spitting images of your Father. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. What's Jesus doing right there? Here's the high bar. And right next to it he says, when you love those who don't love you, you will be the spitting image of your Father who himself is kind to evil, ungrateful people, who himself is merciful to people who don't deserve it. Here's the bar. And he points us not towards get busy. He points us towards consider God and how he is towards you. He turns our eyes actually away from the bar towards God. Consider, please, consider the love of God for you. This is one of those concepts that every Christian knows something of and doesn't know enough of. In the internal argument of this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus issues a really high calling and laces into it the God who is like that is your Father. You can't run through that. You've got to stop there. Our great need is not to focus on the fruit we want or the fruit we are commanded to produce, but to focus on that which shapes the heart. The love of God for you in Christ. Think about that. There is no one good, no, not one. All of us from birth have gone astray. All of us except one. There was one son of Adam born 
who was good and out of the abundance of his own heart produced good. Jesus alone. And right at the center of the good that he produced, right at the center of of the love of, of all of his enemies, the love of those who hated him and reviled him and cursed him and spit upon him, right at the heart of that is the taking on himself the curse of God his Father even. Why did he do that? Keeping with the the language of heart. He did that to change your heart. The Bible will use imagery of circumcision when it talks about the heart. And all throughout the Old Testament, the problem with people, from God's perspective, the problem with people was a heart that did not have cut away from it the bondage, the darkness, the death of sin. And so when Christ was cut off, it's a spiritual reality pictured physically, when Christ was cut off from the living, that darkness, that hardness, that shell, if you will, around your heart was cut off. And what comes out of the other side of it for you is a different heart, a heart made new. This is the love of God for you in Christ. That your dead heart, that your hard heart, that your heart that was evil and could never do good and was always resistant, God in love sent His Son to change, to make you alive, to make you new. This is the love of God for you. You did not deserve it. You did not even ask for it. But He did it. And I emphasize for you. Not for people. You. This is made all the more stunning when you consider who it was who did this for you. God Almighty, He is called the Most High. He is the Maker of heaven and earth who is glorious in all of His power, glorious in all of His wisdom, and glorious in His creativity, glorious in His authority, the one that we have rejected. This is God Almighty who looked upon you. And acted to convict you of your sin. To open your eyes. And the words of Romans 5. This is a beautiful phrase in Romans 5. He won you to himself, not by intimidation and not by logical argument. But Romans 5 talks about how he, God's love, has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit whom he has given you. God's love poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. A love that has forgiven you of your sin against the high and holy God. A love that has secured you now and secured you on into the future. The Spirit of God lives in you and His job, even in this very moment, even in this very moment, is to take what you know and to convince you of the depth and the breadth and the height and the love of it, the sweetness of it, 
so that you would look at God and God dealing with you in Christ, and you would look at him not as, as a great concept and as a high authority, but as a dear and sweet and beloved Savior, a seeker of you, a defender of you against all potential threats. This is the kind of conviction that must grow in you. You in yourself are adrift at sea, but you in Christ are safe and secure. You have an anchor for your soul that has not only secured you amidst all the storms of life, but it's taken you into the very presence of God and secured a place for you there. And you will never be taken out of His presence. This is glorious. Oh, that the Spirit of God would press into you a deepening conviction of this. Because compared to this, nothing else matters. And to the degree that you right now say, oh yeah, this does, right there i got to say, behold the love of God. May the Spirit of God help you. Because all of this is light and momentary affliction. Light and momentary said a man who was stoned near death several times and who had finally his head cut off. Light and momentary. Because the God of all of the universe, the Most High, has determined to love me. Brothers and sisters, this is the conviction that must grow on you. Do you believe it? And the answer is yes and no. Of course you believe it, but of course you don't. Which is why Paul would pray in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul's prayer. Paul spends three chapters preaching the gospel to the church. To the church. And he wraps it up at the end of chapter 3. The first three chapters of Ephesians don't have any commands in them. They are just, this is what God has done for you in Christ to love you in Christ. And he wraps it all up by praying. And he asks the Father, Father, would you give them strength? Would you give them, you need strength for this. Would you give them Holy Spirit strengthening, Holy Spirit power, a deepening conviction that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? They know it, but they don't know it. Would you help them to know that which is unknowable? Supernatural intervention required. Would you help them to know that which is unknowable? That they may be filled with all the fullness of Christ. Filled up with all the fullness of Christ that out of the abundance of my heart, life would come. Christ would come. Christ-like life would come because that's what's filling me up. Do you believe this? Of course you do and of course you don't. May God the Spirit and this is, it is a prayer because this is how we stand before God God, I know these things. I mean, I probably, for many of us, I probably did not say anything you have not heard before. 
God, I know these things, and my heart has been retuned to say, ah, don't nail apples, don't try harder, but set my heart, self, set one's heart on the love of God for me in Christ that has secured me, that has won me to himself, that means I will never be left nor forsaken, that I have life from him. I know that, but God, would you please bring conviction of that deep down within me, that I would know that which I know and that which is unknowable. That's where our attention is turned towards God to work here. That we would be filled up with the fullness of Christ and out of us would flow Christ's life. So we preach this to ourselves. God, my Father, loved me saw me, chose me, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for me. And so when he calls me to love my enemy and to bless the one who curses me and to forgive and give to such ones, he does not call me to go where he has not already gone. And he does not call me to go where my heart, empowered by him, will die. No, it will not die. I will not perish. I may lose my life, but I will not lose life. We preach that to ourselves, reminding ourselves of who He is and who He is for you. And that, oh, granted, that is hard. But that is the only way That is the only way that genuine fruit grows in your life. And that is the only way that you can even attempt to walk after him in obedience in some way that doesn't leave you burdened, trying harder. In fact, this is the way that would leave you filled with joy inexpressible, beholding the glory of this Son who loved you so. Because this is all that works then, and because this is all that will deliver you from burden, and because this is the path towards a heart that is rejoicing all the more and ever rejoicing, Please, brothers and sisters, cry out to God. Set your mind on reflecting about the depth, the breadth, the height, and the love of God for you in Christ. And may He convict you deeply of that. Let me pray. Father, I don't know what I've missed and what I haven't covered well enough and how it's been foggy and unclear, but you do. So please, Lord, take and plant and water that which is useful and helpful. Clarify where needed. Press home where needed. And I ask you to do this, Lord, so that your people would be strengthened with a power so that your spirit, Father, so that your spirit would grab a hold of us and supernaturally, powerfully, 
convict us of a massive life and eternity changing love. We need power for that. It is beyond us by ourselves. So thank you for making us a people who are new. Thank you for giving us new hearts. And would you renew those new hearts again, powerfully revealing and illumining that which is in us already, the love of God, but which we overlook. Help us, please, Father. We need your help. Please do that in individuals. Do that in our congregation as a whole. Build up your people and move us to follow your decrees, to follow Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. We pray your blessing upon us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.